Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. It's a pleasure to welcome today to the Beeson Podcast uh, Dr. George Weigel. George Weigel is a friend of mine. We have the privilege of working together in several different venues including the Enterprise of Evangelicals and Catholics Together, where he, along with Chuck Colson, are co-conveners of this theological discussion group that's been going since the early 1990s, started by the late Father Richard John Newhouse and Chuck Colson back then. It's still going strong, and George is a vital part of that ministry. But I'm here today primarily to talk with him about his most recent book, The End and the Beginning, which is really part two of a two-volume biography he has done of the late Pope John Paul II. Before we get to that, George, uh, for our folks who may not know you personally, say a little bit about who you are, your background, uh, kind of what has led you to this point in your spiritual journey. Well, thank you very much, uh, Timothy, for having me on, and greetings to all of the good folks who support your work and who listen to these uh, podcasts. Our friendship is something that I have treasured for many years, and I look forward to many more years of good work um, in the great cause of the Lord uh, together. Um, I'm not sure exactly what to say about me. I grew up in Baltimore in what was really, in retrospect, the last moment of intact Catholic urban culture in America. Uh, I pursued uh, studies in philosophy and theology. I have worked in the think tank world for the past 35 years after a a brief spell in academia. Uh, I have done an awful lot of writing in the last 30-some years, uh, which has been a great pleasure uh, for me. Uh, But 15 years ago, I got the idea in my head that uh, Pope John Paul II deserved a, a comprehensive biography, by someone who was prepared to try to understand him from the inside, both spiritually and intellectually, and that I was the guy to try to do that. Uh, The Pope agreed that he would uh, cooperate with me in doing this, although the book would be my project and my responsibility. And the first volume of the biography, Witness to Hope, was published in 1999. At my last uh, encounter, uh, this side of the kingdom, with John Paul II in December 2004, I promised him that uh, if God uh, spared me, I would finish the job I had begun with Witness to Hope. And uh, the new book, The End and the Beginning, uh, is the completion or the fulfillment of that promise to John Paul II and the concluding volume of what I expect will be the major piece of professional work I do in my life. Uh, This has been an amazing experience these past 15 years uh, to be able to spend so much time in the personal company of as well as inside the mind of one of the great Christian witnesses of the last two millennia and arguably uh, one of the two great Christian witnesses of the 20th century, uh, perhaps uh, in uh, tandem with Dr. Billy Graham, uh, John Paul II brought the gospel, brought the Lord, brought an invitation to meet Christ, 
to more people than anyone else. And for this to have been done by a Polish priest whom very few people had ever heard of before he was elected Pope on October 16, 1978, uh, is, I think, a sign of the energy of the Holy Spirit uh, at work in the church and in the world today. Yeah, you mentioned Dr. Billy Graham, and if I'm not mistaken, um, Dr. Graham was actually preaching in Poland at the church of John Paul II in Krakow when he was at the conclave being elected in Rome. Is that true? Yeah, it is true. Actually, the story is even better than that. The last thing that Cardinal Carol Wojtyla, as John Paul II was, uh, prior to 5 p.m. on October 16, 1978, the last thing he did in Krakow, where he had been Archbishop for 15 years, was to give permission for Dr. Graham to preach in what's called St. Anne's Collegiate Church, which is to the Agalonian uh, University in Krakow, uh, which was founded in the 13th century, uh, a similar kind of church to what St. Mary the Virgin is to uh, Oxford University. It's the university parish. And John Paul II was happy to give uh, his blessing to uh, Billy Graham uh, speaking there. Uh, which made for a nice symmetry when, after John Paul II died, Dr. Graham said that the late Pope had been the great Christian witness of the second half of the 20th century. And as I said to Dr. Graham's daughter-in-law, that was a very generous statement for Dr. Graham to make, since he was the only other plausible contender <laughs> for the title. Yeah. Well, I think he sincerely meant it, and... John Paul II had a tremendous, uh, and he was tremendously appreciated by American evangelicals. Maybe the first pope uh, in modern times, for maybe ever, uh, to have such a draw and such an appeal. Uh, now, of course, there's his personal charisma. There are all these things you could, but what accounts for that kind of evangelical response to JP two? I think Timothy, it has to do with two things. One is that. Uh, the late Pope was manifestly a Christian disciple who had dedicated his own life to offering others the possibility of meeting Christ. And that, uh, in that sense, this was uh, a Pope of a particular evangelical potency. Uh, and the second thing, of course, was that John Paul II became, uh, around the world, uh, the great defender of the dignity of human life, the sacredness of human life from conception until natural death. So as evangelicals and Catholics in America have found ourselves in the same foxholes in the culture war in which we're engaged, uh, I think both of the communities found in John Paul II a great field marshal in that uh, struggle for life and that struggle for biblical truth uh, as it relates to uh, human life and the dignity of the human person. Yeah, I, you, you know his great encyclical on Christian unity, Ut Unum Sent, the very end he talks about the common Christian witness of martyrdom. And, in, and I think it was 2000, the Jubilee year in Rome, he included in the list of martyrs to be honored in the Colosseum a Baptist martyr from Canada and several others who were evangelical. So which again, shows his breadth uh, and reaching out to the whole body of Christ. Well, I think the Pope believed that the martyr was, at every moment in the history of Christianity, the, the, 
the truest paradigm of discipleship because uh, in the martyr, the commitment and, and the self-gift of uh, one's life to the Lord is concretized in the most complete and dramatic way. Uh, and because uh, we know in faith that the martyrs are taken to the Lord, the Church of Martyrs around the throne of grace is the Church recomposed in its full unity for which we strive here on earth. So the Church of the Martyrs is, in a sense, uh, a model uh, for the unity of the Church in truth, uh, this side of the kingdom of God. I was in the presence of John Paul II twice. The last time was at the Patronal Feast of Peter and Paul, which happens, I think, on June the 29th in Rome. It's a big event in St. Peter's. I remember being in the Mass that he led, uh, sitting on the second row, actually, and it's given special seats by some of my friends in the Vatican. And uh, there he was, This uh, at that point in his life, already suffering visibly from the effects of uh, his age and uh, his physical problems, but carrying forth with such dignity, with such vigor in his own way, uh, and with such a sense of presence. Talk a little bit about the last years, and in particular, his physical suffering. He wasn't what we would call a martyr in any classical sense, and yet he it did embody, I think, what the Apostle Paul must have meant partly when he wrote in the book of Philippians about the koinonia, the fellowship of the sufferings of Christ. In the new book, The End and the Beginning, I describe the last months of John Paul II, and one could extend this to the last years, as his last encyclical, his last great teaching moment, if you will. Except in this instance, he was not teaching with words on paper. He was teaching uh, with the example of his own life. Uh, and what was he teaching? He was inviting people through the experience of his suffering to enter into the Paschal mystery of the suffering, death, and resurrection of the Lord. And he was teaching the world that what appears to our blinded eyes as the absurdity and meaninglessness of suffering can in fact conform us to Christ if we identify the suffering which we undergo with the suffering of Christ the Lord. Uh, this was his last great uh, teaching moment as a priest. This was his last great exercise of his priestly ministry. And it riveted the attention of the world. Uh, I think one might also say that at a moment in the history of Western culture, when we are tempted to think of life as disposable, uh, when we are tempted to think of those who are old and ill and suffering as primarily burdens that the rest of us have to bear. Uh, the Pope showed through his own suffering that uh, all of these people whom some might wish to simply turn off are men and women who bear the mark of their human dignity uh, to the end of their lives. Uh, and who bear the image of Christ in the world in a particularly powerful way. Um, in that sense, the suffering John Paul II 
uh, embodied the truth of what his great spiritual friend, Mother Teresa of Calcutta, said when she described these uh, poor uh, dying souls that she would pick up off the streets as Christ in a particularly disturbing disguise. Uh, that's something that the Pope, I think, manifested, uh, and if I may be permitted the term on a decent podcast, sacramentally made president. It doesn't offend me his, at all. <laughs> uh, <laughs> through his own uh, wearing, if you will, of the suffering of Christ. Now, he was the, Pope John Paul II was the first non-Italian pope since Adrian the Sixth in the 16th century, at the time of the Reformation, which is in itself kind of a remarkable uh, statistic to think about. Um, and this is a question that kind of maybe bridges your the two volumes, uh, the first volume, The Witness to Hope, and this one, The End and the Beginning. Uh, talk about how the world looked when he became pope and how the world looked when he uh, was taken home to glory uh, at the end of his life and his role in bringing about some of that transformation? Well, in terms of the world, I think, the principal uh, transformation for which, in which he played a pivotal role was the collapse of European communism. Uh, in 1978, when John Paul II was elected, everyone expected the Cold War to continue far into the indefinite future. Uh, and within 11 years, he had been what I think most historians uh, now recognize as a crucial figure in the breakup of uh, this uh, evil system. Uh, one might also find his footprints in the development of free societies in Latin America, uh, in East Asia. Uh, but I think it's also important to recognize how he transformed the church. Uh, the, and, and for, for the particular concerns that, that evangelical uh, Christians and Catholics share, I think perhaps the most important of those transformations was the Pope reminding the Church that the Church does not have a mission, as if mission were one among a dozen things that the Church does. The Church is a mission, and everything the Church does, uh, from the parish level to the papacy, uh, has to do with the mission that is the great commission to go forth and preach the gospel to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Uh, this was a huge gift to the Catholic Church from John Paul II, but I think it also provided a kind of jolt of, if you will, evangelical energy uh, to the entire world church, or at least to those parts of the world church that were willing to uh, pay attention. And uh, in that sense, the Pope launched the Church into the third millennium of its history with a new burst of uh, missionary fervor uh, behind it. You've written about the whole issue of clergy sex scandal. Uh, what would John Paul II think about uh, what has happened since he has left the papacy, and how will history look back on him and his handling of that issue? 
Well, I hope he would say uh, the truth, namely that in reference to the United States, at least, Catholic Church is the safest environment for young people uh, of any similarly situated institution in the country. Uh, the problem has been addressed, and the problem has been uh, almost entirely resolved. Uh, the Catholic Church in the United States is 65 million people at least, uh, in the last uh, year for which we have statistics, which I believe is 2009, there were something like three credible cases of reported uh, abuse. Now, that's three too many, uh, but it's still, uh, given the human condition, a rather dramatic uh, uh, statistic. Um, I, th- I discussed uh, the Pope and the abuse crisis at great length in the end and the beginning. I think the uh, accurate statement is that when the Pope became fully aware uh, of the magnitude of the crisis in the United States, uh, he acted decisively to deal with this here in the U.S., and he put in place uh, administrative and canonical or legal procedures in the church uh, that are allowing um, bishops around the world to deal with these problems as they emerge, if they emerge, uh, in a in a more uh, uh, direct uh, and assertive uh, way. Uh, I think the Pope would remind us that the abuse of uh, the young is a huge global problem. Uh, this is not a problem confined to the Catholic Church, to the Catholic clergy, to Christianity, to Christian pastors. Uh, the enormous problem of the modern slavery, known as sex trafficking, uh, uh, is orders of magnitude greater than these problems. Uh, there are huge problems of the sexual abuse of the young in American public schools. Uh, this is a plague. It's a global plague. And we don't get the global plague uh, in focus if, like the New York Times, all we do is obsess about the Catholic dimension of this. So, um, uh, but if, if any of our listeners are interested in exactly how this happened and unfolded in 2002, and even before that, uh, I would refer them to the book. Let me just say one other thing on this, and that I think um, an accurate historical judgment of John Paul II uh, would have to locate any discussion of his handling of the abuse issues in the broader context of the fact that this pope was a great reformer of the Catholic priesthood. Priesthood was in very bad shape in 1978 when he was elected, priesthood is in much better shape today uh, because this pope inspired many men already ordained to a new appreciation of the beauty of their vocation and its difficult demands, and he inspired an entire generation of new priests who uh, whose understanding of the unique spiritual paternity involved in Christian ministry uh, is the best uh, armor we have, is the best defense we have against uh, clergy sexual abuse in the future. You say that uh, John Paul II was a great reformer of the priesthood, the Catholic priesthood. 
would you be so bold as to say that he also was a reformer of the Catholic Episcopacy? I'm thinking particularly about the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. Uh, no, they're bishops outside of North America. But uh, it seems to me that under the influence, perhaps, this is more of a question than a statement of J.P. II and some of the reforms he began, there's been a sea change in attitude, in posture, in approach uh, to the delicate issues of the day within the Catholic Episcopacy. Am I wrong about that? No, I think you're right. Uh, and I've just written about this in the journal to which we both contribute first things. In the February issue, I have an article called The End of the Bernadine Era, which describes in some detail just how this transformation has taken place. Uh, again, I think it's a question of example. Uh, Carol Wojtyla was one of the most dynamic, successful, imaginative diocesan bishops in the world at the time that he was elected Pope in 1978. And I think he brought that experience to the papacy in a way that gave him a unique capacity to inspire in his brother bishops a similarly evangelical approach to the office of bishop. Bishops are necessarily administrators, but if bishops are only administrators, or even, I would say, primarily administrators, then something about the historic office of the overseer, as the word actually means, episkopos in the New Testament, uh, something uh, essential has been uh, lost. And I think the generation of uh, bishops uh, being raised up in the United States today and for the past uh, decade and a half at least uh, reflect that, um, uh, if you will, more evangelical conception uh, of the office of bishop in the church that uh, John Paul II inspired and embodied. I want to encourage all of our readers to uh, read the end and the beginning. And if you haven't read Witness to Hope, that would be a great one to put on your reading list as well. It's it's the, a magisterial work for sure. Uh, you say the, the, the last significant publication you may have, George, uh, but it's one that I think that will endure for many, many decades, even into the next century, uh, as a tremendous insight into one of the great Christian leaders, really, of, uh, of the two millennia of our faith, uh, and certainly uh, in the living memory of most of us. But I do have a question. What about John Paul II's own books and his own writings? If some of our listeners would like to dip into that, what would you recommend? Where would be a good beginning place? I think the place to start is with the um, question and answer book he published in 1994, I believe, called Crossing the Threshold of Hope. Uh, I think that's the most um, personal uh, of his books, and it gives you uh, a unique insight into the mind and the heart uh, of a great Christian disciple and a great Christian leader, so I'd start there. Crossing the Threshold of Hope. So, uh, George, thank you so much for taking this time to visit with me on the Beeson Podcast and sharing your thoughts, your insight. Thank you for your ministry and for your friendship in Christ. Uh, you're a great witness for Jesus Christ. It's a pleasure to know you, and I'm grateful for this time we've had together. Thank you, Timothy. It's always a pleasure to be with you. God bless you and all of my friends at Beeson. Thank you much. Bye now. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. 
You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.